Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. You've been grunted. The nothing personal word of the day is grunt. Yes, that's a verb, folks. Grunt. It's what happens when you actually don't want to play a full season. You want to party. You want to say you're retired. And then you want to come back. Because you end up missing the game. You miss the paychecks. You miss the bling, the rings. And you realize you miss the camaraderie of the clubhouse. The question is, though, does he actually want to come back? Of course, I'm talking about Gronk as in the tight end for the Patriots, who said he's got a big announcement coming tomorrow. Fascinating. Will the announcement be that he's returning to play the rest of the season and into the playoffs? If so, will it be the Patriots? Could it be the Cowboys? Or is it possible that we're being completely gronked and he's just going to announce an event that he's going to or some sort of other money-making possibility for the now-retired, no-longer-getting-paid-every-two-weeks former tight end? I personally believe that he'll want to come back because he looks at the quality of tight ends and realizes he can go on to any of the playoff-bound teams, immediately play, and try to add to his growing, growing list of jewelry. So the word of the day, you've been gronked. If you're not talking about Colin Kaepernick today, then I don't know what you were doing all weekend. But if you listen to nothing personal or pay attention to anything, you realize the whole workout was a farce from the beginning. And now we're beginning to see both sides do CYA left and right. They're trying, the NFL is trying to figure out how they can turn what they hoped would be a PR win into a PR we didn't lose too badly. And Kaepernick is trying to figure out how he can take what was supposed to be his moment and try to continue making it greater and greater. Let's break it down. The first thing is the National Football League got into a business that it's really never into, which is providing a showcase for an unrestricted free agent. Why is it the NFL would be doing that? Well, maybe it's because there was a grievance with Colin Kaepernick that resulted in a payment ending the grievance, but there's still a lot of PR around why aren't teams signing Kaepernick. You know the stats. Quarterbacks are getting hurt every single week. So is it possible that there are 63 people in the world who are better at being a quarterback than Colin Kaepernick? That's, of course, 32 teams times two quarterbacks. I could argue there's three quarterbacks per team. So now we're talking about 96 people in the world. Kaepernick would have you believe there's no chance of that. The NFL teams and the scouts and the owners would tell you he's about number 1,000. The truth is probably somewhere in between, but we certainly didn't learn anything from that workout. Let's break down how we got to that point. The NFL schedules a workout for Kaepernick. He immediately says, promotes it. It's going to be at the Atlanta Falcons training facility. 24 teams are going to show up. The teams were pressured into showing up. You didn't hear that anywhere, but I assure you that he wasn't going to work out in front of zero people. And teams said to themselves, I'm happy to send a scout. We'll say we were there, and then we just won't sign him because there's no way a scout is going to learn anything from that workout the way it was done and say, oh, he's better than what we have, even if he is. But then Kaepernick 
turns out, wouldn't work out at the Atlanta Falcons facility because they didn't have a legal agreement on waivers. I will not spend time on this except to say the following. Anytime two people agree on anything, there are always waivers that have to be signed. Do you know all the things you sign when you go skydiving or when you go to an escape room or when you do anything, you have to sign all these documents that you never read? Basically, what you are signing is that if you get hurt doing the activity that you're now doing, you're not going to sue anybody. And if you try to sue somebody, you're not going to win. So that is a very normal negotiation that takes place between lawyers. How could the NFL and Kaepernick's camp not come to agreement on waiver language? Hmm. There can only be one reason, and that is that both sides were being unreasonable. It's not unreasonable for the Falcons to want to make sure that if there's a workout at their facility that they're not responsible for anything. It's not unreasonable for the NFL to say, I don't want to be responsible if Kaepernick gets hurt during his showcase and then have to pay lost wages. It's not unreasonable for the NFL not to want Kaepernick to come after them again for anything relating to the grievance or collusion. And it's not unreasonable for Kaepernick to make sure that where he's working out is first class position, athletic field, people around him, that everything's really tip top shape so he can show his best. But they couldn't come to an agreement and so they moved it to another facility, let's say 25 miles away and only eight teams ended up showing. And their excuse was, with the change of schedule, we couldn't accommodate the workout any longer. Give me a break. Of course, they could have gotten in their cars. That's what scouts do. They drive from one place to the next. And they could have called their team's travel agency and gotten a later flight if they were going to miss their flight. But the juice was no longer worth the squeeze. If it weren't going to be right where the Falcons were practicing, then they weren't going to schlep somewhere else. At the end of the day, what was hoping for by the NFL by doing this is that everyone would forget that Kaepernick was not signed by any team back when he should have been signed. What Kaepernick was trying to do is maybe shoot a Nike commercial? Maybe. Maybe try to prove that he should still be in the NFL? Doubtful. Trying to stay relevant? Guaranteed. Well, it didn't work for anyone. The workout this weekend was a net loss for the National Football League and for Colin Kaepernick. The other thing that happened this weekend, which was crazy to me, is Tua got hurt, and people went crazy. I loved it. So I don't love that Tua got hurt, and I'm glad that his surgery went well. It's not a Bo Jackson hip situation. He hurt his hip. There's a chance he'll have a full recovery. But after a surgery, everyone always says, quote, the prognosis is excellent. He's going to be fine. Well, what do you think a player agent says after his player or her player gets hurt? They say the same thing. Don't worry. Everything's fine. Well, of course they're saying that about Tua because Tua stands to make a lot of money in the NFL draft. Except no one's tanking for Tua any longer. He clearly is not the number one pick, having nothing to do with his injury. Could he have been the number two pick, two quarterbacks in a row instead of a defensive player? Maybe. The question is, is he going to fall even lower than a top five pick? And does it now make sense for a team who didn't plan on taking a quarterback to now draft Tua? He will not be able to demonstrate health by the draft. We know this. Even if they who haven't heard it, I'm telling you he will not be able to. But is it worth it? Well, this calls into question the entire tanking strategy. There were hashtags about tanking for Tua. But it makes no sense to tank for one specific player. It makes no sense to tank for a specific pick because you can't guarantee it. 
Let's look at the Dolphins. They did everything possible to get the number one pick, and they couldn't do it because how were they supposed to know that the Bengals were going to be worse, that the Redskins were going to be worse, and that they were going to end up with the number three or the number four pick? That means they tanked for nothing. They could have tried to get incrementally better and still gotten the third or fourth pick and avoided all of the crazy PR that went with tanking. As far as two is concerned, this is a nightmare, and Nick Saban, his coach, has to be despondent. Why? Because there's a question about whether he should have even been in the game when he got hurt. You may recall it was the end of the half, first half, and it was 35-7 to Alabama was winning. Why are people upset with Saban for having two in the game? Is it true that we had a conversation on Nothing Personal about the 13 individuals who make up the CFB committee? And that they're in charge of deciding which teams actually get to be in the playoff and therefore which teams make up the CFP? Yes, it is possible. Does winning a game 75 to 10 look better than winning a game 21 to 17? Yes. So there's a reason the two was in the game and he should have been in the game. I don't like when people are Monday morning quarterbacks and say, listen, he shouldn't have pitched that day. It was a spring training game. It's a preseason game. It was a blowout. Take out your best players. You don't have that option when you are coaching a team where it's a point system. If it's only wins and losses, maybe you do have two out at that point. But in the first half, no chance. So Tua gets hurt. Saban has to take the mic. Nick Saban takes the mic and immediately is defensive about what took place. He should not have been defensive at all. Injuries happen. He can say everything he wants about Tua, what a great kid he is. But if Tua's agents were smart and his representatives and family were smart, he was insured against injury. This is something that young players are doing that they never used to do before, which is making sure that what makes them money starts making them money before they actually get paid. And we're not talking about college athletes getting paid. We're talking about insuring something. You recall back in the 80s when Mary Hart insured her legs, the host of Entertainment Tonight? That's what we're talking about. You insure the things that are making you money. For Tua, he could have insured his arm, his elbow, his hips, anything that could be career-ending. Totally normal. Let's not feel sorry for Tua, but we are hopeful that he will come back and have an opportunity to have a good career, but it will not be as the number one pick in the draft because tanking for Tua did not work. Well, the Astros are in it again. We get to talk about the Astros every day here on Nothing Personal because every day it's something new, except what happened this weekend really goes beyond the pale because now people are just looking to bury the Astros. And I told you I'm not the first to defend them. I can't stand them, actually. But I will tell you that what came out this weekend is the opposite of a big deal. There was an email discovered where someone in player development, which are the people who are in charge of the farm system and of the scouts and everything else, It's called scouting and player development, so not the major league team. An email came out to the scouts saying, when you are at a game, please make sure that you are trying to capture the signs of the other team. If you have to use binoculars, please do. If you have to use a camera, please do, or a recording device. Whatever you have to do, just do your job. People went crazy. It's called confirmation bias is this concept, and this is a concept that is not just in sports. It's pervasive throughout the world and throughout any conversation. When you have a thought in your mind and you believe it to be true, and then you see something in the world that confirms to you what you think and want to be right, and then you say that's the reason why you're right, 
That's called confirmation bias. So when you think that the Astros are cheating and you were told that there's a center field camera and then you hear and read an email which tells scouts to use a camera, you use that to convince yourself that you were right that the Astros were cheating the whole time with the center field camera. Two problems with that confirmation bias. Number one, scouts are not stealing signs during the course of the game from the pitcher to the catcher. The way it works is scouts sit behind the plate. You've seen them all at games. They're holding radar guns, and they're taking notes, and they all look like they've been on the road for 250 days, and you can't figure out how people who look like that have those kind of seats. Yes, those are the scouts. They're looking out. They can't see what the catcher is doing when he's holding out his fingers. Two, four, one, three. They have no idea. They're looking in the dugouts. They're looking at the manager hitting his nose and his ear and his chin. They're looking at the third base coach who's hitting his shoulders and the brim of his hat and rubbing across his chest, the uniform. They're trying to figure out hit and run sequences, bunting tendencies, stealing tendencies, the take. Does this team take on 3-0 and or not? What's the take sign? And to do it, you have to record it. Do you think scouts or anyone, like it's not exactly a Mensa convention, how are they supposed to remember everything that they see during the course of what has now become a four hour and 20 minute game? They record it. Every team records it. Every team uses recording devices. Look, I have one right here. I could record the show while we're doing it, violate every possible copyright law, and there's nothing anyone can do except pull a plug on this broadcast. So don't blame the Astros or this assistant GM, who I'm not going to name, because his name is already being dragged through the mud, and it shouldn't be. This was a totally normal email. This is not a Brandon Taubman situation, who was the assistant general manager who got fired, whose name I'll keep saying from the rafters as long as I can talk. The one who was making fun of the women reporters in the clubhouse, of course. So the question when you're looking at what the Astros are doing and thinking about their level of competitiveness, then video starts coming out. We now have a video in the World Series documentary that purportedly shows the computer and the screen that was used to show the signs that were coming in from center field and then a garbage can that was used to bang on so that the hitter could hear. couple problems I have. Number one. I've built the ballpark and certainly helped, and I've put garbage cans in near the dugout. The reason we don't have metal garbage cans is that we don't want that type of noise. Not because we're trying not to steal signs, which we are. Not because we don't want to communicate with our hitters, which we do. Because it's not actually financially practical to have that type of garbage can. So what that type of garbage can was, was not loud enough to be banged on. It's like an Oscar the Grouch garbage can that would make the type of noise that you're hearing on the internet. The more likely way is through a whistle. That's another example of confirmation bias. You see a garbage can, you hear a story about banging garbage cans, and you assume the two are related. Is it strange to have a computer right outside the dugout? No, it's not. All teams do. Is it strange that there's wiring done the way you're seen on the internet? No, it's not. When you build a ballpark, you pre-wire for everything. But Minute Maid, which was called Enron Field before, but Minute Maid, where the Astros play, was built, let's say it opened 10 years ago. Hopefully, I'm going to get in my ear from Coca the exact year it opened. But let's just say 10 years. But it could be more. The technological advances that have taken place are 
unbelievable. Therefore, the wiring could not possibly be up to today's standards. Marlins Park was built in 2012, and we already had wires all over the place in 2013 because we did the wiring from 2009 when we started building the ballpark. That's when we did the wire package. So, of course, there's progress. So just because you see a cable near the dugout and a garbage can and a screen that's a laptop does not mean that they were stealing signs from the center field camera. Now, I should point out they were stealing signs from the center field camera. Uh, the Hall of Fame ballot just came out. Yes. Here it is. Hall of Fame ballot. I, uh, I don't have a vote because I was an executive. I'm not a writer. And so I would never get into the Hall of Fame. Even as an executive with one ring, you can't get into the Hall of Fame, which is why Josh Beckett won't get in, even though he's got the same ring I do. And he had one heck of a career, but just not a Hall of Famer. So I have a list of people who are not going to get in. And there's one guy who will. So please record this moment because this is for you, Derek. Uh, Yes, you're getting into the Hall of Fame. And you deserve to be in the Hall of Fame as a player. Should you be unanimous? No, but neither should Mariano Rivera. No one should ever be unanimous because that's not realistic to me. You're not better than Babe Ruth or Lou Gehrig or any of the myriad Hall of Famers who came before you. That was the beautiful part about it. But now that Mo, Mariano Rivera, got the unanimous nod, now writers think, all right, anyone can be unanimous. So this year it will be you, Derek. But what everybody's watching for, Kurt Schilling. And I'm not saying no to you, Kurt, because of your political views. I could care less about your political views. I'm saying no because you lied about what you did. And two, you weren't good enough to be in the Hall of Fame. I could argue there's an argument You're at 60.9%. You think you're going to get to 75. I don't. Then you've got Clemens and Bonds, two guys who did steroids. The question is, will they make the leap? They're both at around 59%. They're in their eighth year on the ballot. Do people still care about steroid use? Do people still believe that Clemens and Bonds cheated enough that they shouldn't be in? A-Rod, not in. But on the other hand, Pudge Rodriguez is in. And there are other people who may or may not have used steroids. I don't know if you can see this winking. People are in. Mike Piazza's in. Did he use? Maybe. There's people mentioned in reports who some are chosen to be in, some are chosen to be out. Why is it that we're standing so strong on Clemens and on Bonds? It's because we're hurt by their actions. We're hurt that they decided not to tell the truth and ask for forgiveness while they were playing. Why not acknowledge it? Don't blame your wife the way Clemens did. Don't deny the fact that your entire body changed the way Barry Bonds did. I was with him. I saw. I was in the Hall of Fame where in Cooperstown where I saw some things, and I was with him for a full year when he was a hitting coach. It's clear that his body was different toward the end when he was playing, and he was doing things that were against the rules. Does that make him not a Hall of Famer? No. Clemens and Bonds should both be in the Hall of Fame because they're Hall of Fame quality players. The reason why they're not being allowed into the Hall of Fame is they didn't own their own behavior. Just stand up and acknowledge what you did, and then you can be forgiven. But right now, you're in year eight, and you're thinking that just coming back to be hitting coach would be enough or trying to rehabilitate your image? Not going to work. Hall of Fame, Derek, you are getting the stage to yourself, and you thought being an executive was fun.
There's something in Japan that I love. Uh, you know, Japan, I've been to Japan when we signed uh, Ichiro. And I went three years in a row because it was an idea of one of our PR people. His name is PJ. It was his idea to do a press conference in Japan to announce the signing of Ichiro. And that had never been done with all the deals he had signed through his time with Seattle when he was traded to the Yankees. No one ever decided to go to his place to announce it. We did because, A, what could be more fun than going to Japan on an expense account? But, B, it's because it's showing the type of respect to a Japanese player in a society where respect matters. It's not like it is here in America. They have a whole set of rules and regulations, but the number one issue in Japan, it's about honor, it's about code, and it's about respect. And I'm not quoting a few good men. I'm not talking about the armed forces. I'm talking about what it is to have a relationship between individuals where you actually respect and honor each other. So in Japan, the way the Cy Young Award works is the follows. It's not voted on by writers or players. There's actually a five-man committee of former players, just five, who decide who is going to get the absolute, it's, it's really the highest award. We call it a Cy Young. They call it the Sawamura Award. Sawamura was one of the great all-time pitchers in Japanese history. So the award was named after him, much like the Cy Young Award is named after Cy Young. So this five-man committee, they get together and they decide each year who's going to do it. But they've got criteria. And this is not about analytics, it's not about personality, and it's not about emotion. This is about making pitchers pitch. We're talking about wins over 15, innings pitched over 200, complete games over 10, ERA 2.5 or below. All of the people in the United States who follow Major League Baseball are losing their minds right now, saying those aren't the metrics we use anymore. It's about whip. It's about number of runners on base. It's, a, it's not about wins because you can't control wins. Well, in Japan, shockingly, wins do matter. So what this committee decided when they were awarding the Sawamura Award is that no one was going to win it. They actually gave the award to no one and then explained it by saying no one was worthy this year. Think about how epic that is and how that would never happen here in the United States. Now, there's a year in 2013 when no one got in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but that's based on votes. So if no one gets over 75% of the votes, no one gets in. Except there was such backlash when no one got into the Hall of Fame that they even created a committee sort of to make sure that someone would be available in July for induction weekend because it's such big business. The town of Cooperstown can't have a weekend without any inductees. It doesn't work. But in Japan, none of that matters. It doesn't matter marketing, PR, economics. What matters is the honor and the code of winning that award. So congratulations to that five-man committee. And congratulations to not one pitcher, but to all the pitchers in Japan who actually still care about what I used to care about and still do, which is, is this player a winner? Can this pitcher pitch into the, into the ninth, eighth or ninth game? And can he possibly do it by not just striking out hitters, but by keeping runners off base and keeping his earned run average down? What's so wrong with that? So we built Marlins Park in, uh, this is great. We built Marlins Park in 2012. 
We started building in 2009, and we purposefully made it a pitcher's park because it was our belief that pitching and defense is what wins. And it turns out that we are right. Pitching and defense does win, but the key thing is to have good pitchers. Like Heath Bell is on the Hall of Fame ballot. I can't imagine how that can be. He'll never get above 5%, so we'll have one year on the ballot, I would hope, and that's it. But you need good pitching, you need good defense. But from the minute Marlins Park opened, every player complained to me about the fences. They complained that they couldn't hit the ball out. They complained that their offensive stats were actually showing that they had no power, and they were worried about getting paid less money in arbitration. I'm not making this up. The players wanted the fences moved in because they needed the numbers that get you paid. On the other hand, the pitching staff would come up to me all the time and say, hey, keep those fences where they are because pitchers get paid to not allow runs. So how do you handle it when you're running a team and you've got your pitchers and your hitters who each want something separate? Well, you do what I do. You ignore them both. And you do what you think is right. So in Florida... We, even though Stanton, Yelich, they were crying for the fences to be moved in. I said to Stanton, we're going to do a study. And we did. Let's find out how many balls you hit that are not home runs. That would have been home runs. And then let's find out how many balls that our pitchers give up that are caught by the center fielder and are not runs against us. So we studied it for a year. We took, we kept track of every single home run. And you know what it showed? It was even, even. We gave up fewer, we hit fewer. Everybody move along. But for Stanton, he wanted the fences moved in, the fans, the media, it became a groundswell of insanity and we had to give in. So we did. We moved the fences in, we cut the walls down because the players told us they were super excited to make over-the-wall grabs because they wanted to be on the highlight shows. They wanted to be in the CBS Sports HQ Top 10. You'd be shocked that players keep track of how many Top 10s they're in. Let's say a, a highlight show that has highlights, they're watching to see whether their plays were in the highlights, and they're angry when they're not. I've seen it. I've been in the kitchen watching players watch themselves cheering, and then angry when they don't see themselves. So the San Francisco Giants built a park that used to be called Pac Bell. Um, then it was AT&T, and now I think it's Oracle. So what they've decided to do in San Francisco is move in the fences because historically it's been a very difficult place to hit home runs and to score runs. Except the difference is they're not owning it. They're saying they're moving in the fences simply to allow for bullpens. And it's true in San Francisco, the firm who designed the ballpark is a great firm called HOK, Populous. They designed Marlins Park, and they forgot the bullpens in San Francisco. This is a true story. It's not maybe not never told, but when we were looking to build a ballpark, we toured ballparks around the country and the world because we wanted to see mistakes that were made. It's sort of like parenting. You want to know every mistake that was made by everyone else just so you can make your own because you're obviously not going to be mistake-free. So we wanted to make our own mistakes in building a ballpark. So we went to San Francisco, and of course, this was back in 01, 02, long time ago, 03, 04, 05. Where are the bullpens? And we were told that throughout the design of the building and the construction, no one realized that there was no space for bullpens beyond the outfield fence. 
they had to put the bullpens in after the fact down the sidelines. It's hard for me to even articulate this. This is something that would be on a checklist that every ballpark would have to have. Now, everyone's going to deny this, but I'm telling you, they forgot the bullpens at San Francisco Giants home ballpark, now called Oracle Park. So now they're bringing in the fences. It's 2020. I'm just curious. Did they just remember that they didn't have the bullpens beyond the outfield wall this offseason? Or is it possible the fact that they haven't won and they're starting off with Gabe Kapler as a new manager and they want to try to make it a better offensive park? And maybe it's possible that analytics said that they ought to move the fences in. All I can tell you is it has nothing to do with the fact that they forgot bullpens. They've known it. Ignore what they're saying. They're bringing it in because of pressure by on-field staff and players and agents in order to make it a more hitter-friendly park. Forget the fact that they have three rings with the old outfield fences. It's outrageous. I I got to watch uh, eight hours of a great show that I was excited for. I couldn't wait for season two of Jack Ryan this weekend. I thought that it would be season one was outstanding. I actually was able to suspend belief and believe that John Krasinski from The Office and from uh, It's Complicated, that's the movie with Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep where he plays the son-in-law. It's an outstanding movie. The scene with him and Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep in the bathroom, that's Jack Ryan in the bathroom with Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep. It's to die for. It's so funny. So I was able to believe that he could be possibly Jack Ryan, who was played by Harrison Ford in the movies. And the first season made me think that they made the perfect casting choice because John Krasinski is brilliant. He's smart, intelligent, funny, good-looking. He was a little more buff than I would have liked, that's for sure, but he had to be to be Jack Ryan. So season two comes out, and I'm completely excited for it. And then I watch it, and then I realize that they totally fell in love with their own position, meaning they tried to recreate their head star. They tried to make him into Harrison Ford, but he's not. He's supposed to be charming. He's supposed to have quips in the writing. There's supposed to be a romantic interest. There's supposed to be a way to believe that someone in the CIA could look like him, but also act like someone you'd want to spend time with and have dinner with. Well, season two was not that. I didn't enjoy it. It takes place in Venezuela. It's about over about an election that's supposed to be free that's not. There's so many side plots and craziness that goes on that I just wasn't buying it. And they also didn't write enough for John Krasinski. So you forget that he's charming and funny and interesting. And you think that he's just there like being Sylvester Stallone and Rambo. There was no sensitive moments. I waited eight episodes and never got it. Is it enough for me to get rid of the show and not watch season three? Absolutely not. But is it enough for me to tell you to skip season two? Absolutely yes. Jack Ryan, season two, thumbs are way down. Why do owners always feel they have to say stuff? I, I'm, I'm just as happy, right? I did that too when I was running the Marlins. It's like when there's silence, you feel like you cannot put yourself in a position where the narrative is being run by someone else. So you try to take a story away before it becomes a story. Well, the Jets did that with Adam Gase this weekend. They announced that he was their coach in 2020. Why? Why would you take the time in the middle of a horrific, disappointing first season where everyone was calling for his head, not because of the bad performance by the Jets, but because the fact is he probably shouldn't have been the coach to begin with. 
He was supposed to be this great offensive guru with Peyton Manning. He goes to the Dolphins. is terrible. Gets a job immediately with the Jets. Remember the press conference with the Bug Eyes? And then he had a disastrous season. I'm not saying that he should never work again. I'm not saying that he should even be fired by the Jets. What I am asking is, why did the owner of the Jets, Christopher Johnson, or the guy who has him in a trust for Woody Johnson, the ambassador in England, why did he feel the need to say, we're definitely bringing Gase back? You don't have to give him that vote of confidence. The Jets are not in a position where they need that. It's not like the people in the clubhouse. The reason in baseball you give a vote of confidence is you do it during the course of a season when you think that that team has a chance to do something. You want to make sure that you take away all excuses for players to underperform. The Jets are going nowhere. There's no chance of them going anywhere. So it's not like giving their coach a vote of confidence will make the clubhouse a huge place for kumbaya. It's just an example of an owner trying to take a play from an owner's playbook on how to fill a void of silence and try to change a narrative. But they did it completely wrong from the wrong perspective and the wrong angle. Here's what I'm doing if I'm Chris Johnson. I'm taking the microphone, a little bit like what the Knicks brass did, except I'm going to say things a little better. And I'm going to say, the 2019 Jets season has been inexcusable. The record we have is not indicative of the talent level that we believe we have and are confident we will have going into the future. We believe we have assembled a coach and a coaching staff, as well as players on the field and a front office with scouts and people in training and development to ensure that the Jets get where we all want them to be, which is back to the Super Bowl for the first time in decades. Do we know that we have to get better? Yes, we do. Do we believe we've done our job perfectly? No, we don't. But I promise you, if you invest in us, we will continue to invest in our product and invest in you, the fan, with our new beautiful stadium called MetLife Stadium. We will make sure that there are games in January going forward. And then I leave the microphone. Instead, Johnson just said this, off the cuff and matter-of-factly, totally wasting a PR opportunity. Yes, we're bringing Gase back. The irony is, is that it's likely they're not going to bring him back, and then we're going to get to come back and talk to this and show how completely idiotic it was that he said it to begin with. So I'm, uh, I'm proud to work at CBS. I love CBS Sports HQ. Uh, I love all the people with whom I work. There is a level of talent here that never ceases to amaze me, both on camera and off camera. Um, CBS did something this weekend that I absolutely did not agree with, and uh, I don't understand it, and I'm going to tell you about it. Because again, what are they going to do? Unplug the camera? Maybe they will. Wait to see. But if you're still hearing this, it means we're okay so far. If you were watching the Broncos game yesterday on CBS, you may have seen their fullback hurt himself, but you had to be watching live to see it because CBS refused to play a replay. Now, was it gross? Yeah, it was his elbow and arm breaking and giving in. Was it sort of like Joe Theismann's injury? Not nearly that bad. But explain to me why CBS and every other network is so happy to show every replay when it's helmet to helmet or when it's a wide receiver being laid out by a defensive back and I see every angle 14 different times, 20 different replays. The guy may be knocked unconscious, blood coming out of his ear. He may not know what day it is, but every network is super excited to show me every angle. Did you guys see enough replays of Miles Garrett bonking Rudolph on the head? 
I think we have the Zapruder film. That's how often. Just Google it if you don't know the Zapruder film. How many different angles we got on that. Yet this injury, that's where the line's drawn. We're not going to show something that's gross and we're going to make you go on social media to go find it. Now listen, I get it. We all watch games with our cell phone or with our tablet open. And we know if we don't get the replay from CBS or anyone else, we're going to go on our phone and we're going to get it there. But that's not my point. My point is the thought process in the powers that be, they are the social and moral police. They're deciding what I get to see on replay. And their view is that a broken elbow and a broken arm, that is disgusting. But two men hitting each other like two freight trains where they see little dodo birds and Tweety birds, that I'm going to get over and over, shame on you. Show every replay. I'm fine with it, but don't pretend that the game isn't violent and don't pretend that as a fan I don't know that a guy could break his ankle or break his arm. Of course he could, and it's totally normal, as a matter of fact, that there's going to be that type of injury. I, I, I don't get what they were doing. There's a line for me, and I don't want anyone drawing that line. If I don't want to watch a replay, I will turn away. I've got three devices I'm working on so I can easily get myself distracted. But the point of the media now is I need everything available at every place, every device, so I don't have to have you decide, I get to decide. I think you're going to see that more going forward because if there's an appetite to show violence, there's got to be an appetite to show things that are disgusting. And it's not about protecting his family or respecting the guy's privacy. This is a professional National Football League player who's a fullback for the Broncos. NBC had an opportunity later that night to show a replay of an unnecessary roughness call against Brooks of the Patriots. It was the end of the game. I don't know if you saw that play. It scared me. It gave me shivers, as a matter of fact. I saw 20 replays of that. I'd rather see Joe Theismann's leg break 100 times, get a little squeamish, than see what I saw with the, un and they call it unnecessary roughness. That was the penalty. Unnecessary roughness. Yeah, it was close to death is what it was. Well, we get another game today. That's the good news. Thank God. You know, I get to, I get to make picks because who doesn't like to gamble? Who doesn't like to make picks? And I look at each game in every sport each night, and I think about what is my best chance to win? Because I'm trying to win because I want you to win. You're watching. You're listening. You deserve a pick. Now, I know for a fact you're going to watch Monday Night Football. Therefore, how would I not give you a Monday Night Football pick? I'm not going to give you the Vancouver Canucks and make you stay up at 10.30 and watch a hockey game. I don't even know if they're playing. But I'm not giving you that, even if it were my favorite bet. I'm giving you a bet for a game that you want to watch, that you need to watch. You've got Patrick Mahomes playing tonight against Phillip Rivers and the San Diego Chargers. Don't tell me they're the L.A. Chargers, Coca. I know that. They have no fans in L.A. I'm calling them the San Diego Chargers. You're welcome, San Diego. So, I don't know who's going to win. I don't know what goes on in Mexico. I don't know anything about it. The one thing I know is the air is thin, the quarterbacks are good, and the defense is mediocre in my mind. Therefore, enjoy the game. Don't root for anyone except points. This game is going over. The number's 53. You're going to be scared. Don't be scared because of A, where the game is, and B, when you've got Mahomes and Rivers, isn't it more fun to cheer for points? That's what we're doing, and you're going to get yourself a winner. I guarantee it. Over. Chiefs Chargers. Mexico. Enjoy the game.
One thing that always uh, bothered me about my life in sports is that everything revolves around the clock. And funny enough, MLB doesn't have a clock. But I always felt that the calendar ruled my life. And spring training would start, and then the season would start. And I would always say it's early in the season, but then eight games would be played. And then before you know it, you've played 16 games and you say, my God, we're 10% done with the season already. We were just in spring training. We were just at the winter meetings. How does that work? Well, guess what? Do you remember opening night of the NBA? It was like yesterday, right? The NBA season is 15% over already. I don't even know how that's possible. I don't know how time would fly like that, but it is 15% done. So let's give you a few hot takes with what's going on in the NBA season. Let's start with this. Who do you have as the biggest surprise of the season so far? Anyone in the crowd? It's not the Lakers, no. The biggest surprise was called by someone we work with named Marone. We have a dollar bet like Mortimer in, in Trading Places. I keep track of all dollar bets with everyone I have because you actually have to pay these bets and I get paid or pay. The bet was, will the Heat be better than the Nets? And I said, no, the Nets are going to be better than the Heat. But the Heat have come out, and they have really surprised me. They are the biggest surprise so far of this season. I'm not telling you they can keep it up. Wait to see the wait to see. But what I am telling you is that after 15% of a season, no one expected them to have the type of home record they have, and no one expected them to be toward the top just behind the Celtics in the Eastern Conference. Somehow, Pat Riley put together a group of players, brought in Jimmy Butler, who to me cannot even glue two pieces of paper together, and he's found a way to glue a team together. So good for the Heat, good for Butler, will it last? Um, who's your biggest disappointment? Well, for me, that's pretty easy if you watch basketball. Uh, it's easy for me. I've got the Sixers as my biggest disappointment. I expected them to be competitive with the Celtics and to be a better road team. Uh, I thought it would be addition by subtraction without Jimmy Butler, and they're just sort of okay. They're not as dominant as I thought they would be. A lot of season left, but for to be a disappointment, it doesn't mean you have to be a bad team. When you're running a team, you can win 90 games in baseball or 55 games in basketball and be a disappointment. You can have a 10-6 and six year in the NFL and be a disappointment. For me, if the Sixers don't win 57 games plus, this is a disappointing season for them. They're my disappointment right now. Now, when you're watching a season, how do you know if you actually should not believe what you thought was going to happen and you have to believe what's really going to happen? So what do I mean by that? The Miami Heat were not expected to do anything this year, not compete for the title, sort of be a lower seed in the playoffs despite what Marone said where they'd be a top four seed. I believed, as many other prognosticators did, most of whom, if not all, know more than I, that the Heat would be sort of middle to bottom of the pack, which really is not good enough to compete for a title. When do you start believing that it's possible that what you thought about your team is not the way your team plays? And I'm not talking about fans. I'm talking about executives. Fans take one win, and they believe they're going to the Super Bowl in the NFL. Or one five-game winning streak in baseball, they'll never lose again. But as a front office, the biggest decision we ever had to make is when to change our minds about our initial evaluation of a particular season. I'm here to tell you that the Miami Heat will not do that. They will not change and mortgage their future and make deals at the deadline or change their view on players because of what's happened over a 12 to 15 to even 20 game stretch in an NBA season. 
good executives like Pat Riley are too smart for that. They're too smart to take what is a small sample size and extrapolate that over a long period of time into your future. I've seen a lot of executives do it. Owners do it, but remember, owners are fans. Executives who do it end up in the media. Executives who don't do it end up going into the Hall of Fame as executives because they're not delusional and they don't tend to believe what they see. They believe what they know. So for me, 15% of a season, that's the equivalent in baseball, if you think about it, of about 16 games is 10%. 20% is 32. It's 24. Yes, I was doing the math while talking. It's 24 games in an MLB season. That would still be in the month of April. Are you changing your mind about your team in April? No, and neither will the Miami Heat. My wait to see is about those Heat, and uh, I'm doubling down on my bet with Marone. That's four mentions in a row, but Ruben still is winning nine mentions to four over Marone. My wait to see is the Miami Heat will not host a playoff game as a top four seed in the first round which means they will not finish in the top four seeds. Wait to see, but it's almost a guarantee. Hey, when you're going back over the show and you're thinking about Kaepernick, you're thinking about what we talked about with the Astros, especially with Tua, and I promise I'll call him Kaepernick from now on, but just make sure you go through and always remember as you're listening, it's never about business. Yes, it is. Don't be confused. It's just business. It's nothing personal. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com